Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna, and I'm here with Kevin Koval, the founder of Louder Than a Bomb Youth Poetry Festival, the world's largest youth poetry festival, and also the artistic director of Young Chicago Authors. So welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We, uh, I, you know, I was just saying I really appreciate you doing this so last minute, and I was able to do even less preparation than, than I usually do. Um, but it was when we met yesterday, was super excited to be able to talk to you on Please Speak Freely because I've heard of Louder Than a Bomb and have a lot of... Uh, admiration for your work in terms of um, amplifying the voices of young people through poetry. So uh, I want to hear about your current work, and I know you have a book out, and I definitely want to hear about that, but maybe we could start by, if you could just kind of um, tell us a little bit of the origin story of the festival, because it's in its 13th year, um, and uh, that's pretty amazing for a, shock, for a youth poetry festival based in one city um, to... to blow up, so to speak, as much as louder than a bomb did. So nice. yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I'm, I'm a poet. And, and so I started to perform, uh, I moved back to Chicago after playing, uh, a year of, uh, basketball overseas, um, moved back to Chicago in 96 and 97 and started to perform around the hip hop and spoken word, uh, clubs and scenes and communities in Chicago and eventually, because of the nature of the work, uh, a friend of mine asked me into his high school classroom. Mm-hmm. I was still pretty young at the time. I mean, I, myself, I was 21, 22, going into alternative high schools where kids were 17, 18, 19, 20 sometimes. Right. And so there was a little gap between our age, uh, but a shared cultural experience. And so mm-hmm. in my first classroom... Um, we ended up talking about nothing other than uh, the Fuji second record, The Score, which had just dropped. Mm-hmm. This is like 97. And I thought I did a horrible job. Like I thought the class was a wreck. It was an hour and a half of what was meant to be an English class. I was supposed mm-hmm. to do a writing exercise. And I left the class and I told my man, I'm like, hey, sorry, man. You know, that was, <laughs> I had a lot of fun, but obviously, yeah. like, I'll see you around, you yeah. know? He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, that was, that was, that was great. You should teach. I'm like, ah, that's funny, dude. He's like, no, 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 you should come back here and do a residency. And I'm like, well, that, that sounds fancy. He's like, no, 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 we'll pay you to do it. I'm like, I'll definitely be there. Right. And, and I started to, to teach there uh, at a place called El Cuarto Año. And for the next three, two, three years, I uh, started running around the city doing these short-term creative writing, hip-hop, poetry residencies. And that was on your own as a on teaching artist just getting hired here and there. Yeah, yeah. And it was, just, it was through my, my work as an artist was getting me hired then in – uh, classroom spaces and I started to tell people that I was doing stuff like this and right. um, so I started to get around a little and and then I linked up um, with a crew of teaching artists through Young Chicago Authors and we formed a writing teachers collective both for uh, poet educators and classroom teachers who were trying to use creative writing in the classroom to re-engage young people in their own mm-hmm. education process and so in 2000 uh, we kind of you know, joined, created a collective of maybe 10 people through this non-for-profit Young Chicago Authors that was basically a Saturday writing program that brought together kids from, you know, maybe, you know, maybe 20 kids from around the city together in one space mm-hmm. uh, on Saturday to do creative writing. We started to meet in that space on Thursday nights. And then 
we, we, you know, we just realized progressively that the 10 of us in that room or the 12 of us in that room knew a lot of young people. I, I was probably working in, you know, 10 to 15 schools at the time, um, throughout the course of a semester. And there were classroom teachers, of course, who saw, uh, you know, two, 300 kids who were engaged in creative writing, uh, in their, in their high school. And I knew some other teaching artists like Avery R. Young and Tahimba Jess and Tara Betts, uh, Krista Franklin a little later on, all folks who, um, have become incredible artists and poets in their own right. And, and we just, we, we looked around the room. We're like, we, in this room, we know we have access to thousands of young people. Right. And you're and, working in the, the third largest school system in, in the yeah, country, I think. In, so in the country. And, and there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of impact that you could potentially have. And we started to see that impact on a small scale because mm-hmm. we would get kids who would be at the fringes of the classroom um, now participating. A lot of times, even now, when we leave a class, the classroom teacher will say, oh, you know, that you know that kid has never said shit in class. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and now they're at the center of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then th- the reason why we started the festival is because in 2001, uh, these things were going on. The towers had fallen and America began to criminalize brown people and uh, around the planet. Just then did it begin? <laughs> well, no, of course not. Of course not. But, you know, at Sorry, that point... I don't point, need to make light. No, 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 that's real. But, I mean, yeah. of, co- of course not. But at that point, like, that was, like, in the midst of that patriotic fanaticism and furor, yeah. um, we were struck in part because, you know, it's, it really seemed like... I mean, we, you know, we went to war immediately, right? Um, again. And, and then at the same time, in the city of Chicago, the city council was trying to pass an anti-gang loitering law that was locking up kids of color for hanging out in groups of more than one. Mm-hmm. And we, saw, we, we, had, we started a program at the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center, a creative writing class. And so we saw that uh, school-to-prison pipeline on a regular basis. You know, we, we, we met kids in the high school classroom. Next week, we'd see them at county. Yeah. Um, and so and I, just, I just want to clarify something you just said. Um, cause the, the anti-loitering laws, you know, are something that I'm a little bit familiar with. And, uh, you know, my, my good friend Jakarta Imani at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights mm. has, has talked about that and possibly even when he was on Please Speak Freely. But you just said, um, that they were bringing kids in for, uh, loitering in groups of more than one. Yeah. Cause yeah. I haven't heard it that extreme before. So I just want to make that, sure. You- in, in Chicago, that's what, that's what they started to do. They, if you were hanging insane. out on your block, if you were hanging out on your stoop, with even just one other person, and they would come, they would come through, yeah. and then they would they would lock wow. folks up, um, and so and we started to see that at an increasing uh, level, and wanted to in that moment of of chaos and madness create some sort of alternative. Um, it seemed like so much of what was being done in the name of Chicagoans or in the name of Americans was rooted in this fear, right? And so we wanted to create than a situation, uh, an environment that was radically different than that and bring young people together so they could speak for themselves and so they could listen to one, one yeah. another. And so we, you know, in that room, we're like, oh, well, we should just get these young people together in this poetry festival slam called I Love Public Enemy, Louder Than a Bomb. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's where we got the, that's where and, I, and that took the title. can you explain the reference a little bit? Yeah, it's from, it takes a nation of millions, you know, I think mm-hmm. probably... Um, Arguably, maybe the you know the most important hip hop record uh, made eighty eight uh, eighty nine. Um, Public Enemy and Chuck D put out "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back," and on that record they have a 
album they have a song called louder than a bomb mm-hmm. um and, and in that moment it seemed like the things that we can make via our uh, cultural contribution can be greater than the weaponry that is waged against the people that were you know the people that we're working with and for and among um and so yeah i mean it's it's an intentional uh ode to the spirit of that music uh and 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 that tradition in which it roots itself in you know chuck d uh calls himself a poet consciously of uh the, uh, the next iteration in some ways of the black arts movement uh, myself as a poet um started writing and started claiming the title poet because of the black arts poets um hip-hop introduced me to them so you know when i was in high school uh, chuck d and krs1 sent me to the library to read and i hated poetry until i was eventually in a stack of literature uh, stack of books at the northbrook public library just outside of chicago in the black section in the black study section read malcolm's autobiography freshman sophomore year the Rome bennett jr's history of black folks before the mayflower and then in that same section there was an anthology by dudley randall called the black poets and so in there i read sonia sanchez and nikki giovanni and amiri baraka and hakim adabudi who later became a mentor of mine mm. and it was then that i thought that poetry was something that was alive and fresh and sounded like people sounded and was of uh you know told the stories of of working people and cause prior to that, I thought poetry was only something that was done by dead white dudes who got lost in the forest. You know, I, I hated it. Like, I, I thought it was the lamest of of arts, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but then then it was, it was, you know, of course, I mean, this is the story now for thousands of, of, of I think, young writers is that, you know, the, the black arts. And then, you know, I was introduced to the beat poets and the New Yorkian school of poets is like, these folks save this form. You mm-hmm. know? So you, you found the festival and the festival happens now. Um, take us through how that um, evolved into something so much bigger. Because here's my experience with um, sort of event-based things like that is that there's a lot of excitement the first time to really make it happen. And then there's often an attempt later on to to sort of rekindle the fire and you never quite capture the spirit of that first time, Um, especially when you've got such a core dedicated group of teaching artists the way you did. But now you're in your 13th year. And I'm I'm especially interested in that because – um, you were talking about how much, how many kids you all ha- associated with in that group. But when you multiply that by the scale that you've grown to and the number of years that you've done it, um, the the impact is so much bigger. Yeah, so I, I think that we're doing a few things, and I think we're doing a few things that are at the center of progressive education. I think we're doing also some things that we have learned from. Uh, hip-hop cultural practice and uh, hip-hop community organizing practice. Um, You know, really what we're doing is we're putting the story, this narrative, the personal narrative at the center of the educational experience. And so, um, you know, asking a young person in their educational space, whether it be formal or not formal, uh, what do you think? Where do you come from? How do you feel about that? Uh, What do you love a lot? Um, Who are you? Who are you? Speak on it. Right, and so we're doing that. That that never will never get tired. That is an one of the most ancient practices that we have. We will always sit in a circle and tell stories around fire or drum, and you know we're never going to not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing, you know, and that's that's not rocket science. That's very easy. 
Um, we do it based off of contemporary literature. We bring in a hip hop song or a poem, usually to kick off a conversation, usually to model um, the way or style or form a theme in which to write on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll start with stuff that folks know. We'll, we'll bring in. I mean, if if you know if if kids in the class are listening to you know whoever, if they're listening to you know Jay Z or Lil Wayne or Gucci or Waka or Chance the Rapper or Chief Keef or whoever it is. We'll lead with one of those songs, typically just because, you know, I think, I too think that's fresh and they've not explored it in the educational space, I would imagine. And so to make that jump from Chief Keef to Gwendolyn Brooks, very small bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, we just got to know how to cross it. So that's part of the work of being an educator. Um, so to put that story at the center of the, of the classroom space and then to do the work of community organizing by creating these crews of hip-hop poets spoken word poets in a classroom uh, then create a club for the school and use the vibrancy of what's happening in that space in a classroom or after school to help begin to filter and shape the culture of that school um, is an important process for us. So the poets who are in, who comprise their Louder Than a Bomb team or their spoken word club begin to get asked to perform at assemblies or, um, you know, in front of their peers or they do an open mic after school and, you know, their, their friends come and the families come if it's in the evening and the administrators come and they see these young people then in a different light, right. in a different way. And so that first level of engagement of taking what's been happening in the classroom and using it to help to transform the culture of a school is really powerful and something that we try to arc uh, our work towards the poets now in chicago some schools will walk around their 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 hallways as if they're star athletes Mm -hmm. you know they they get big up because they just did a poem in front of an audience of you know a hundred, two hundred, a thousand people, and now they're walking through the hallways and they're like, "Hey, man, you, you did that poem. That was fresh. Da da da. Whatever, you know." And so that's helping to transform the uh, what we consider to be popular, or what we consider to be status worthy in a school based off some you know hyper nerd literacy stuff. Right. Right. So that's fresh. So taking that energy then of what's happening in the school, and because Chicago is one of the, if not the most segregated, largest cities in America, mm-hmm. um, we want to then cross all of these boundaries that typically would keep young people from seeing one another. And so we use you know, some mix between Saul Alinsky's community organizing principles and African Mabada's community organizing principles uh, and bring folks together in creative cultural crews outside of their neighborhoods into a central space so these crews so these teams so these communi- so these communities can interact speak with to uh, one another mm-hmm. and so therefore the city then begins to um, really you get to you in in that central space you get to hear the chorus of what chicago sounds like actually finally as opposed to the you know segregated bitch you might get if you remain in your neighborhood mm-hmm. um there are very few spaces, very few cultural spaces in Chicago where you get that opportunity to hear everybody. 
And louder than a bomb is rooted in that notion that you have to hear everybody in order to understand what the city is and then to have, you know, real democratic practice. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the reasons why the festival has grown is because that's an exciting prospect. Uh, You know, kids want to see and hear other kids from across the city. Uh, Some of it's hormonal. You know, they're like, oh, that girl's fine. That dude looks good. Um, Isn't that exciting? But part of what goes on is that, you know, you realize that there's grand difference and also, uh, you know, grand similarity. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in multiple cities in Chicago, you know. Mm-hmm. If the experience you get if you are a white kid who lives in Rogers Park or goes to Northside College Prep is radically different than if you are a, a black kid who goes to Team Inglewood or North Lawndale. Um, and, and so... Part of what we see in that space, too, part of what's articulated is that there is a a real giant unfairness in terms of the resources that young people have access to. Sure. Uh, and, and I think as a city, we become more and more aware of that disparity between between people. And I think that our our thought is that once you begin to really change the culture you can potentially change the politics and the politics will change the policy, you know? And so I think eventually like our young people are going on to understand and interact with and imagine the city differently, you know? And Chicago has been in the news a lot lately for, I mean, you're rarely in the news for good reasons to be real. But, um, so the two things that come to, to my mind immediately is one within the educational sphere, the whole, um, uh, teacher strike, and I got to see Karen Lewis speak at the uh, New York Radical Educators Conference, um, Coalition of Radical Educators Corps, something like that, um, recently. And um, got to learn a little bit more about what was behind that, including some colorful anecdotes about Rahm Emanuel. Um, and then, you know, in the, in the larger sphere of the city, just um, having so many murders um, this year, or I guess the last couple of years, and having such a... Um, a desperately hard time dealing with the the violence that's taking place. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering how does what's happening in what I saw referred to somewhere as Chicago land. Is that like a normal thing to say? Well, Chicago, Chicago land. Yeah. Sure. A, yeah. <laughs> which, what's happening in Chicago land. Um, <laughs> how does that um, impact your work or, or, or um, how does it change what you do if it does? I mean, it's the same as it ever was, you know, we mm. like, these are not, issues that are new uh there 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 were more murders in the 90s and the early aughts than there are now it's just the reporting is is different um because the right. the homicide rate has has increased for the city uh, we you know chicago lost a million people uh due yeah. to deindustrialization and gentrification and yeah. uh you know folks uh, you know, working and and and, and low income folks being pushed to the suburbs, the uh, the 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 shutting down of of um, uh, you know state or city funded uh, community housing projects mm-hmm. push people to the suburbs, and so um, you know, so in the, part the, it's a numbers game. You're saying, yeah, 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 and, and part of it is overblown and overhyped. Um, you know, there are conditions depending on where you live that make certain communities you know the likelihood of a young person being affected by violence on the south and west and east sides of the city uh is is almost a certainty in terms of 
who you know. I mean, if you if you ask young people in those communities, do they know someone who's been shot? Do they know someone who is in the prison industrial complex? Uh, you know, alarming numbers, 80, 90 percent, maybe more kids who have been affected by by, you know, by, by that reality. Yeah. Um, you do it with their, you know, white peers and the north or or north suburbs or or surrounding suburbs and those numbers change radically right and so i think part of what we've always thought and part of what you see now in america's reaffirming that it doesn't value black life as much as it does the life of of white kids in the trayvon martin case is that we celebrate young people's experience uh, we put it in the center of a theater with you know twenty five hundred people and expect and want that young person to say what it is they must say what it is they feel say what it is they want people to hear and so part of what we are trying to do is counter uh the devaluation and degradation and uh of of black life in in this country. And put that, put those voices that have existed intentionally at the margins, if at all, of dominant discourse into the center of that discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think part of the reason why it's grown in a city like Chicago is because those voices are essential. Uh, because young people have and always have a desire to be heard. And I think young people also have a desire to listen. Um, in in a in the space of a of a bout an event, uh, it's maybe ninety minutes, and your opportunity to speak is only for three minutes at a time. So to speak th- on stage. To speak on stage, yeah. you're only, you're only talking for three minutes. Yeah. Which means the other eighty seven minutes of that event, you're listening to people who are not you. Right. Um, and I think that there's also a delight and a desire for that. Um, the say. Uh, in 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 hip hop, you have the creative cultural space and or, or uh, of the cipher, mm-hmm. uh, the circle where you you know you could you 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 could improvise or you could you know do a pre rehearsed routine or um, but you have your time in the cipher and then you remain in the circle but then the person next to you has their time and I think that is also a kind of a metaphor and a mode of uh, democratic practice that you know hip hop inherited from jazz and so forth, but mm-hmm. um, I think we practice something similar, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think that I think young people have a you know more of an um, inherent desire for fairness and equity than you know folks who legislate, and so I think that 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 desire is real. It's part of the reason why the festival has grown. Um, we've also been as an organization have been very deliberate in going into places that were not. And and looking at the map of the city, looking right. at the zip codes, right. uh, looking at the schools and, and, and communities where we, we are not in and going there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so it, the festival would be not as successful if we let it be just a north side festival. It'd be mm-hmm. lame. Or if it was just a west side, you know, it, it has to be this all city uh, principle, this right. all city chorus. And so to organize in that fashion then has been, um, you know, meant work and, and, and work that we, you know, are now, you know, building to really uh, harness the whole strength and power and vitality of a city. 
And there are, there are people I know in other cities doing, doing similar work or work coming from the same spirit. Um, you know, I comes to mind in, in New York, um, I know urban word is, um, you know, takes some similar approaches and uh, youth communication, mostly with, with non-fictional writing and community word project. And out in California, mm-hmm. there's youth radio and um, other groups um, that are, you know, have the same kinds of goals as you do and doing some of the same work. And I'm wondering how much do you connect with those folks nationally? Well, yeah, we connect a lot with those folks nationally. And, and um, I think that there's a growing national conversation um you know we're about to host brave new voices which is the national youth poetry festival started uh from youth speaks an organization in san francisco um and we've hosted it in chicago uh this is our third or fourth time hosting this festival in chicago um and i think the you know we have a we have a difference of an idea of what a model the, the model for this can be in a city um we we think that uh, to organize high schools where young people are and to create teams from those high schools makes this form more like a, a sport. It, it, it gives a sense of, um, you know, almost like civic pride. You know, right. you, could, you, could, you, you could be excited about your team. Mm-hmm. And what that does is help to organize the school to come to the event. Uh, it, first of all, it helps to change the culture of the school. Um, there's a, there's a high school, uh, team Inglewood high school we started with. I think that they're, they're six years old now. We started with them when they started their school, public school, uh, on, you know, kind of Southeast side of Chicago. And they have embraced the, the culture of hip hop poetry and spoken word where now it, they, they host a Southside regional slam. They host a duo slam. The poets are, you know, integrated into, many many aspects of of uh student life and so the prospect that you can be a poet during the course of your high school experience is omnipresent right you know it's as if you it's on par with being um you know a a football star or a uh you know basketball player Mm -hmm. and so we think that if you organize at the school level you have the prospects of really changing the culture of that school. Mm-hmm. If you organize schools at a city level, then you have the prospects of changing the culture of a city because young people and institutions are then traversing the city in a new way, particularly in a city like Chicago where that doesn't happen because of forced segregation, um, where the culture then of the city changes. And you're saying organizing school by school like that with teams as opposed to sort of uh – maybe say a community center based approach or some sort of there's one place where kids come from around the city to go that just draws the ones who are sort of most already interested in, in doing that. Is where, that right? Yeah. Where it's, where it's individualistic, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And, 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 uh, it's a great way to find kids who are maybe already interested in the form and giving them the space to go. I think our team approach is about the collectivity involved in working together and then also what that team can do uh, to transform the school. Right. Um, and so, so our approach is, is different. And this is a conversation we have nationally with Urban Word and Youth Speaks. Um, and I think that there's a way for these models to live together. Sure. Uh, and I think, I think it's interesting because we had a documentary film made about the festival in 2008. Mm-hmm. And then it premiered uh, around film festivals and around the country and around the world in 2010. And since 
that film, it's been really interesting for us as an organization because we were one of the first places we went was the Palm Springs International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And we had an auditorium of maybe 2,500 people, mostly educators and high school kids. And the first question that I got asked after the film, uh, after the credits rolled, is how do we do that here? Mm. Um, which I, I, for some reason, I didn't think about. I was so, and I, I, I remain kind of such a Chicago centrist that I was really narrow in terms of thinking only about Chicago. Like my, where I had gotten, the farthest I had gotten with my thinking at that point was this would be an all-state tournament that looks right. something like the Illinois State Basketball Tournament right, right. meets a, you know, MC battle. Mm -hmm. But when they asked that question, I'm like, oh, dang, right. Um, well, we let's talk about that. Let's So as an organization, we started to put together the resources, the, a toolkit, a workbook, a plan mm -hmm. to share what we do in Chicago nationally uh, because it's a transferable model. Right. And so because of the film, we now have seven other cities around the country that have done their own Louder Than a Bomb festivals. It started in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, Omaha, Nebraska, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, the state of Michigan, the state of Wisconsin, the state of North Carolina, um, and, and now another dozen cities across the country and a few cities internationally were in the process of talking about what does it look like to have a Louder Than a Bomb South Africa, a Louder Than a Bomb Toronto, mm -hmm. a Louder Than a Bomb um, uh, uh, you know, Palestine, Israel. You know, um, what, are, what are these... What do these cities look like when we take the same organizing principles and, and, and remain putting the narrative at the center of the educational experience and then bringing those young people together in a space where they could really hear one another? Mm -hmm. You know, the work then becomes really boundless. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where we're at as an organization now, uh, engaging in these national, international conversations, um, and in part wrestling with these other organizations in terms of, uh, you know, debating the best kind of pedagogical practice and organizing model. And, and we think the team model is, you know, just a way to really do strategic community organizing as opposed to, you know, call together a crew of 50 kids to a library on a Saturday. You right. Know? But isn't it hard to find teaching artists who share your values and have the skills to to coach those teams and like to at that scale? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. So, and, and so how do you how do you address that? How do you how do you find them or how do you help them to come around to the kind of approach that you take? Or is there is there like a formal process for that? Is it more of a mentoring sort of relationship? I'm I'm interested in that. You know. No. That's, and that's that's great. And that's where that's where we've become. That's where we've landed in a lot of ways yeah um the you know poetry is there's a lot of bad poetry a lot of bad poets sure. um a lot of bad poet educators um the adult slam world is a dungeon and dragons convention you know <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> it's you know it's just a bunch of um you know it's just a bunch of you know, nerds kind of, uh, who are, you know, a little, you know, narcissistic, self-aggrandizing. Is it cool to be a nerd now? Um, if you are, if you, if you brew your own beer and, uh, use mustache wax in Brooklyn, right. then yes, right. I guess. Um, but really it just means you're, you know, the next iteration of a yuppie. Right. Um, I think, I think what, I think what happens is that 
the the to, to answer your question is that it is difficult to find competent, uh, like-minded poet educators uh, who can do the work of mentoring a mass of students throughout the course of the city. We were running into that problem as an organization because we were not thinking properly about how to find and create poet educators and mentors for the next generation of writers. So what we did as an organization was create a teaching artist core mm-hmm. uh, comprised all of students who came through the festival. Mm-hmm. Now we're on the other side of college or on the other side of high school who we go through pretty rigorous de- professional development with training with and you know work with them to become professional artists and professional educators and and so that over the last two years for our organization has changed our belief in terms of what is possible yeah uh these six individuals live at the center of the organization they deliver you know, we're a small we're a small organization. For the amount of work that we do, we're still a very small organization. They deliver all of our work, all of our residencies, all of our in house programs. They mm-hmm. host the festival, they run the festival, they uh we, we do the longest running youth open mic in, in, in the country every Tuesday night in our space. They run and program that. Uh um, we, you know, we, we have a Saturday writing class for poets uh, from 1 to 3, and we have a, a rapper workshop from 4 to 6. Uh, they run that. Yeah. Um, and then they're doing long-term in-school residencies uh, this past year so we could kind of test out a citywide curriculum that we're writing for Chicago Public Schools, the first of its kind, a literary arts curriculum. Um, and but, and they, they, were, they were using that in the classroom, working with classroom teachers. Um, and then they also do short-term, one-off performances, assemblies, workshops uh, throughout the city over the course of the year. And so mm-hmm. we want to grow our teaching artist core. And part of you know where we look is to the young people who've come through the program because right. they understand the spirit, aesthetic uh, of, of what it is we're doing because they made it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I know in a few minutes, uh, we're going to be joined by Jamila Woods, who is who you work with. Um, you referred to her as sort of a co-artistic director at Chicago, Young Chicago Authors. Um, she's founding me- member of the Young Chicago Authors Teaching Artist Corps and a, a poet and performer. Um, poet, singer, playwright, and teaching artist. Uh, so she can talk a little bit more about the experience of actually doing that work, as you have as well. But um, before Jamila joins us, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own work as a poet. Um, it's uh, it's always interesting to me when people who come to youth work or education through their work as an artist take on big work like you're doing with the festival and with the all the other work of young Chicago authors, how they can um, also maintain their own creative practice, like their own individual creative practice, because I believe that the work you do, you know, that you've been talking about is also creative practice. Um, and I find that a lot of people tend to put most of their creative energy into that. And so it's difficult to still sort of produce in terms of your own creative work. Uh, you have a, a few books out, I believe, um, and four books out, um, I believe, and uh, including the recent Shtick, which was just released this year. Um, I was I have not had a chance to, to read it yet because I haven't had a chance to get my hands on it since we met yesterday. Um, but I was amazed to look on the Amazon page and see 
um, pull quotes from some pretty impressive people, including Mark Marin, um, the comedian and podcast host who actually um, was part of the inspiration for Please Speak Freely. Um, he said, Koval does for the Jews what Whitman did for America, uh, which is a pretty great uh, quote and um, if he likes Whitman, yeah, we're not. I'm not sure if he no, likes that, Whitman. That's true, actually, and if yeah. you know Mark Maron a little bit, that's an excellent question to ask. But either way, it's a very sharp yeah. um, thing to say. But along with uh, Mark Maron was also Studs Terkel, who said Kevin Koval is a new glowing voice in the world of literature, and Most Deaf, who said simply one of my favorite poets. Um, that's pretty impressive. And uh, first of all, congratulations Thanks. on the release of your book, um, your fourth book. And um, on all this uh, acclaim from these, you know, highly accomplished artists themselves. Um, and, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what, what, is, what do you focus on in your own work? And how do you sort of maintain um, the, the capacity to do that amidst the rest of this more, the work that's focused more on, on collective action? Well, I mean, my own work is the work that I ask people to do in, in the classroom, um, which is to really you know, find the lens and angle in which to tell the stories from your perspective. Um, mm-hmm. I, I focus a lot about the stories of people around me and my own story and the connection between the two. Um, and I work in moods in some ways. And I learn a lot. I think poets typically will learn a lot from painters. And so I work in moods and in themes mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, I, I was, I, I, it took me so long to find a book of poems that I enjoyed reading because I thought prior to finding some of the books that I love, um, books of poems were, you know, a poet after 10 years taking what was, you know, in the drawer, their writing desk and kind of mashing them together and just be like, okay, well, this right, is, right. you know, writings 1973 to 1983. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is, this is boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I started to read, uh, you know, books of poems by contemporary writers that felt more like novels. Cornelius Eady, who started the Kavi Kahnem, uh, workshop along with Toy Terracott, uh, a, a workshop for black writers, um, read, a, wrote a book called Brutal Imagination, which was about the fictional black character that Susan Smith, the white woman who drowned her kids in North Carolina, imagined and said, told mm-hmm. the police that uh, a black man uh, kidnapped her kids. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book from that fictional character's perspective, mm-hmm. a book of poems. And when I read that, I'm like, this is, this is amazing. This is incredible. Uh, the angle into talking about race in America via that fictional character's perspective mm-hmm. is profound. Mm-hmm. Um, Martina Spada is another poet who, when I read his Imagine the Angels of Bread, I was struck by how thematic and uh, narrative that those stories were. And so I wanted to write books of poems like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get up at the same time every morning and write. Uh, that's, it's how I continue to produce work it's also how i just remain kind of stable and so um to get up and and write first thing and compose and revise and 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 do the creative work that you know for myself that i'm also doing uh with the crew of others and collectively uh in the world as an organizer as an educator um i i i think that there's no difference in a lot of ways you know i'm i'm from a school of of poet organizers of uh who um you know i feel indebted to folks like KRS-One and chuck mm-hmm. d and uh folks like a mary baraka and 
Hakim Adabudi in particular, uh, folks who have, you know, volumes and volumes of, of their own, of their own work and also can point to institutions that they've created, uh, because of the power of their work. Um, you know, Haki is a, is, is someone who, you know, I, I read in high school and then, you know, 10 years later, uh, started to be mentored by and, and, and he always, and says still, um, you know, for him, he puts poet in front of the long list of attributes that he is because from his poetic gaze into the world is the door to everything. And, and so for me, I I think it's a similar, similar process. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my sense of justice, my sense of, uh, you know, civic understanding of urban planning all stems from, I think the poetic imagination. Uh, and so it has to be at the root of my practice. And I like that term poet organizer that kind of sticks in my mind. It's a, it's a nice way to frame it. Um, can people find the, the documentary? Uh, I believe it's called louder than a bomb. Yeah. Um, can, is it on Netflix? Is it available online somewhere that people can actually watch it? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's everywhere at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Oprah, uh, Oprah had it on her network, which no one, no one knew about that network, but, but I think the DVD is popular, you know, for popular sale. I know it's for popular sale on Amazon. Yeah. Um, my brother took a picture and sent it to me from a Costco. Um, Oh, there you go. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, you can buy a pack of 10, you can buy a pack of 10, give them to friends. There's an educational, we, we have a curriculum that accompanies the uh, DVD as well and there's an educational uh, institutional copy that's available as well through the filmmakers Uh, the filmmakers by the way are great Chicago filmmakers Greg Jacobs and John Siskel Uh uh, documentary filmmakers in the city incredible storytellers and I think they they did um the spirit of the film real uh, spirit of the festival real justice in 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 the film and and i think it's a really powerful educational tool yeah it's a real gift that you got to have that made yeah so let's take a little break and we'll get jamila and we're back with please speak freely continuing to talk to kevin koval and um welcoming jamila woods who is a poet singer playwright and teaching artist also from chicago founding member of young chicago authors teaching artist corps and um Kevin also referred to you as his co-artistic director. So welcome, Jamila. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Jamila, I want to hear from you about, about your own work, but I'd like to start by just asking you, could you describe a little bit, what's the process of being a teaching artist? It's something that people, um, it's a phrase that people use a lot. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, we've, you know, Kevin and I have been talking specifically about the power of poetry mm-hmm. um, in helping young people tell their own stories and come together to hear each other's stories. Yeah. But what's the process like in the classroom? Um, well, I think it's been a journey this past year for me really figuring that out. And one of the main things I've learned is it's really about maintaining your own artistic practice and allowing that to inform your curriculum and the way you approach the classroom too because it's it's a lot it's it's a lot less like being detached from from your own art and like writing a curriculum it's for me like what do i what am i excited about reading right now how can i engage my students in that mm. and also you know thinking about like what you know like how that might apply to their daily lives like what what about that will spark them to also be excited about poetry um so i think in that way they really being a teaching artist is like having the best of both worlds because you're constantly every day forced to really ask yourself why is poetry important because the 
a lot of times a room full of students, they're not just going to eat up everything you say. You have to, you know, prove it to them. And so um, that's been one thing I really learned this year. So how how much do you actually follow a curriculum that, that you've written or has been written for you? Well, right now we're um, testing out, we're kind of trying to write this curriculum for the Chicago Public Schools. And so we had like a baseline structure that we were basically testing out. Um, and so sometimes that would work great, um, like at a magnet school perhaps. And then sometimes I was in schools where that just went out the window pretty quickly. And so I, I went, um, I kept the same basic idea, like if we're talking about place or where you come from, but maybe I would choose like a song by an artist that the kids really were into, or maybe I would play a video of a poem instead of just reading it on the paper and like trying to adjust it um, to really fit each school, because that's another thing about um, the curriculum. I think we want to build one that is malleable in that way that can kind of fit different uh, classrooms with different demographics and things like that. And, you know, in our work at Development Without Limits, this is something we deal with a lot in writing curriculum is like how much, you know, what they call fidelity is expected. Like how much are mm-hmm. are people expected to actually stick to the plan? Yeah. And it sounds like for you, at least, you, you know, you sort of take the perspective that if the plan isn't working, you throw the plan out the window, yeah. as you said. Um, or maybe you have d- to come at it from a different angle. Like I mm-hmm. would start out that way. Maybe later in the year, we go back to that poem about, you know, like that. Uh, Carl Sandburg poem or whatever it was that like wouldn't have hooked them at the beginning but might relate more now and was that is that something is that an approach or like a facility that you naturally come by or did you have to sort of develop that the ability to be nimble and think on your feet like that over time and and I I, I put it that way because I think that um, that kind of um, that kind of methodology mm-hmm. can can be scary to a lot of people who go, especially if you're going as a teaching artist going into a classroom of young people who you haven't necessarily met before, and you're mm-hmm. working with them. I don't know what your residencies are like, but you may be working with them for say six to eight weeks, mm-hmm. something like that. Is that right? Um, in the classroom, something like six to eight weeks, but yeah. overall in the school, we're there for twenty weeks and moving into an after school program mm-hmm. after at the end of that. Yeah, but it's a limited time. Yeah, it is definitely so like. Back to, I guess, the I asked the question and then I kept talking, which is like not a good interview <laughs> technique. But so I'll ask it again. Like, is that something that came easily to you or did, did it was it difficult to develop that sort of approach? I think it was it was a challenge because I'm definitely the type of person who likes to have a plan. So I actually would spend a lot of time like planning and also visualizing, OK, if this goes wrong, I'll do this thing and, mm. and that, too. But sometimes like none of it would be right because I just hadn't been in the classroom enough to really know the students. Um, but I think as it went on, I, th- I think I also really like to learn people and learn like the way the way people learn best and try to be accommodating to that. And that makes me a better teacher, too. So I think in it's both ways it was a challenge but also a really good one and mm-hmm. uh, I learned a lot from it I think one of the one of the powers of teaching creative writing in the classroom and I think this is something that Jamila and this contingency of our teaching artists do really well is that they are all actively engaged readers listeners consumers of contemporary culture and so part of what we want this curriculum to be and i think part of the power of of teaching things that you are yourself engaged by is that that energy translates and resonates then in the classroom and so we have a 
plan and we're developing that plan and fine-tuning that plan but implicit in that and and something that i think we are excited about sharing with teachers is that as you find uh, supplemental materials that you are on fire about to move that into the curriculum as well um it's I, i might be excited about a song that jamila is not but if she is excited about a piece of art or a video or uh, a, a, a portion of a play to bring that in. It's going to have, I think, that much more impact and power than if she were going to do the t- the song that she's not really she doesn't get. So, how do you build that into a curriculum plan that you're say publishing for the Chicago Public Schools or, or writing for the Chicago Public Schools? Um, do you put in suggestions <laughs> like you you might choose some of these songs? Um, and if so, how quickly does that get dated? And or do you tell people um, choose something that you love right now? Um, and is that too open ended for mm-hmm. for a school system to really accept? Or is there a, a third or fourth way that I haven't mentioned? Um, I think we're in the process of figuring that out very yeah. much right now. But I think the idea of having that living body, that living canon, versus like the static thing that is like. These are the, you know, the the greatest texts ever. Like we must always use these. Is is what we're moving away from. So I think it's a mix of things. Like I guess we're all the teaching artist core is like pretty. Uh, we're, we're in touch with those like those things that our students might like just because we're not actually that much older than them, um, which is a challenge sometimes, but also good for for things like that. Um, but in terms of what will the teachers in the classrooms actually do, I think it's a mix of things. Like they should also, I think, be in touch with what their students are into, just having conversations with them about that. Ask them, you know, and then go home and adjust the lesson plan based on that, like do mm. a little of their own research. Um, but then also introduce them to something that, that you're passionate about too and sort of like be upfront with the with the students about that's what you're doing. Okay, like we're going to listen to some, I don't know, like some, <laughs> some, some, yeah, Bob Dylan? some yeah. <laughs> something you like, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about something I like and see what, what's similar about them, you know, what's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And, and not, you know, and I think, I think that that, I think the students have a, not to do that every class period, Right, but for in the curriculum for it to be flexible enough where the teacher can bring in something that they're passionate about because then I think the students would be geek mm-hmm. to hear ultimately why? Yeah. yeah, why that they, they that, that that they dig that piece of art, mm-hmm. music, poetry, you know, whatever it is. Um we we we're developing a good bibliography for the curriculum, uh suggested materials, and then we also I think anticipate and have the desire for it teaching artists and classroom teachers to bring in, you know, what is maybe the most contemporary that this, this curriculum could live five years from now, but the songs, like you're saying, might need to be changed. Mm -hmm. The, the Chicago public schools commissioned this curriculum. They asked you to make it or. Yeah, they, they did. Um, which we were surprised by. Um, we, we, there's a new arts education team, uh, at CPS, uh, Mm -hmm. in part because CPS flips their bureaucracy every three seconds in order to intentionally miseducate young people in the Chicago public school system. So it keeps you guessing. Uh, but the new 
arts ed team um, seems powerful and interested. Uh, there are younger people uh, who are leading that charge and leading that team. Uh, pedagogically, they, they seem to have a pretty good sense that arts need to be uh, in every student's experience. And so they asked, they, there, there was not a literary arts uh, curriculum piece that they've put out. Um, there's stuff for music, there's some stuff for visual art, and so they asked us if we would try to write this curriculum, and, and it was our choice to kind of shape it around making a um, contemporary canon of Chicago literature, um, but we also are going to write a lot of different pieces of curriculum, um, and so this is just our, our first and most formal attempt to do so. Yeah. Working in the classroom like that within the school system, how much pressure do you feel to um, bend towards meeting standards or bend towards uh, making your work more similar to uh, traditional academic work? I actually felt the opposite. I never felt any pressure. I didn't. I didn't meet anyone except the classroom teacher who. Um, is usually with the students and both of the teachers I worked with were really open to whatever I wanted to do pretty much. Um, but it also, um, at some schools, it's just clear that the students hate, like really don't like being there. So as much as I could break up the normal environment of the classroom, like move the desks over or just like have a conversation for like 15 minutes about something versus like feeding them something you know to read right away is like was great because I that the response to that was always positive so I think I just kind of followed followed that instinct like if I I walk in and I feel like I don't want to be here like how can I change that Mm -hmm. environment people who write common core and the standards for curriculum are idiots Um, and you could stand up and say your name uh, and you meet most of the common core standards, it seems, in the literary arts. Um, and so it's it's actually pretty easy to manipulate what you want to do, if it's good curriculum, if it's sound pedagogy, to fit the common core standards. Um, so do you have to show that articulation when you write the yeah, curriculum? Yeah, yeah. But, that's, but we don't we wait until we've written the right. curriculum and then we just match it up. Right. Sure. Um, we were having the conversation yesterday about, um, you know, what, what do we value and what should our standards be right. and have that be the, uh, the point that we meet the, the, you know, the, the, the level that we ascend to as opposed to, you know, these arbitrary standards written by people oftentimes who are not really educators. Well, they're, they're not just arbitrary, though. They're actually um, intentionally uh, anti-fiction when it comes to literature. That one of the criticisms of the Common Core, as you as you probably know, is that there's a far greater emphasis on um, what they call informational texts, mm-hmm. um, meaning um, non-fictional texts, um, over creative work. Um, so it's it's interesting. That there's a sort of there's a tension that I imagine many classroom teachers feel because especially, you know, English teachers at the high school level, uh, most of them love literature and got into this in part so they could share that. And now they're being told to, to, to go away from that. Um, personally, I've had experience with this in a different level because, uh, uh, my daughter was, uh, briefly in the kindergarten class as, um, please speak freely. Listeners know I, um, 
was struggled with my daughter's experience in kindergarten last year, and we actually pulled her out and let, let her wait a year, let her enjoy herself for another year. Uh, but uh, what happened in the classroom was I, I went in to a parent-teacher thing at the beginning of the year, and the teacher was explaining to us that um, they do sort of pre-writing work. So they ask the kids to um, tell a story by drawing pictures. You know, makes sense, kind of a typical um, pre-K uh, activity. It's happening in kindergarten, or I'm sorry, it's a typical first grade activity. It's happening in kindergarten now because everything's accelerated, but um, seems perfectly harmless and fun for the kids, except that the rule is they can only write something, draw something that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Because, and the reason for this is, as the teacher explained, is because um, if it actually happened to them, they can um, have a much clearer image of it in their head. And I was like, my five-year-old, you, do you actually think that my five-year-old daughter can more clearly envision something that actually happened to her than something she's imagining herself? Like, it's just a deep misunderstanding of, of child development and of, of the way our imaginations work. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, like, are there parallel experiences? Have you had parallel experiences to being, to, to this? Um, it's not just, what I started out by saying, it's not just arbitrary. It's actually anti um, imagination, anti-creativity, this common core movement. Um, yeah, I guess I don't have as much firsthand experience with it. The only thing I have to do, it, I have to fill out assessments on the students, which I guess I just don't really value that portion of my job that much. So I, I struggle through it because it's, it's like this, you know, one to five rubric based on how well did they, um, interact or how well did they you know perform or how well did they write their story authentically like using an authentic is all this language that I kind of just make up my own definitions for it that I'm I don't think are actually agreed upon among the teaching core I think that when we go into a classroom we we have a value on uh, we, we talk a lot about as an organization authentic voice which doesn't mean things that have actually happened but right. it means that there is an emotional truth to what it is you're saying or uh a it, it, it has to be real not not that it happened verbatim or it, not, it happened in that order or it happened at all um but that it is something in your experience that you are tied to emotionally intellectually spiritually which might mean it's about um you know some other planet interstellar intergalactic uh you know future space travel or you know but it just has to have like some sort of emotional resonance that's true and i one of the things that i talk to a lot about people who work with students writing poetry is especially if they're they're going to perform it somewhere they they start to write these stories that did, that aren't are fiction basically but are like familiar narratives of like something mm-hmm. that's really intense like domestic violence or like something that just didn't happen to them um but they think that that's what people are going to really connect to and clap for um so i think it's a push toward yeah like writing their own something that actually happened um but in a in a different way because it's not it's not because we don't want them to use their imagination or or write that story in a magical realism sort of way it's just that we we want it to be something that's real maybe that's not real to true. them yeah real yeah. to them mm-hmm. yeah 
But we, we, we do a lot of work, I think, of trying to root students in their own sense of the poetic imagination. Um, we do, I, I do an exercise early on which asks them to look at a piece of paper and uh, see if they could see a cloud floating in that piece of paper, which is what Thich Nhat Hanh said poets should be able to do. Um, and it's a sense, it just he, it eventually goes on that everything in the universe is intimately interconnected. Um, but to use that sense of the poetic's mind to see fully how the universe might work, which is also to say how a city might work. So if you see a Starbucks appear on your block, it's not happenstance. It's connected to the global economy and the deindustrialized center in which we find ourselves in urban space. And so to start to make connections between the prison industrial complex and your school closing in your neighborhood is also the work of using the poetics, uh, the poet's mind. And so I think that's the work we really try to do uh, in the classroom space is using the real things around us to make to make connections that you know, typically might not be seen or woven together, but it's the poet's imagination that has the ability then to do so. Right. And Jamila, you're a a poet, a singer, performer in your own right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talked with with Kevin a little bit about the um, the challenge or the the benefit of doing this work and maintaining your own creative practice. Um, Do you do you find that the teaching artist work you do fuels your sort of independent creative productivity? Or does it sometimes challenge it is it is it both um i think it's it's both in a way but i like to think of my time in sort of phases like when i'm in in the thick of the school year i i don't write as much but i'm always reading poems and always looking for things to teach and breaking those poems apart and coming up with new prompts and i can't separate the fact that now that it's summer I'm writing a lot more but I know that without all of that work I've done throughout the year of thinking about process like this wouldn't be happening as easily and Mm. I I, I can feel the way that that's influenced my work Um, and then when I go back you know to into the fall like now I'm like really more excited and moving towards like the new part of you know the new readings that I'm excited about you know ready to jump back into that and I think I work well that way I like um, having you know different different things come to the forefront at different times it's like seasonal yeah yeah it's interesting because kevin talked about getting up every day at the same time and writing at that time so it's, yeah it's sort of an arc of the day or an arc of the year mm-hmm. that, that that your own independent work sort of fits in mm-hmm. in the way that you need it to naturally yeah yeah exactly. yeah that's cool so kevin and jamila i want to i want to thank you so much for um, being on please speak freely it's it's been a great conversation and i've learned a lot and uh you know, if we, if you want to take both of you, if you want to take us out with a little sample of the actual poetry, um, that would be great. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to read this poem called Daddy Dozens, which actually came from a workshop. Um, Kevin and I teach a weekly writing workshop in the space. And this, we were writing about some kind of object or body part or something like in your family that is like, known or like that that's important and so I wrote about my dad's forehead and it's called daddy dozens my daddy's forehead is so big we don't need a dining room table my daddy's forehead so big his hat size is equator 
So big, it's a five head. Tyra Banks burst into tears when she seen my daddy's forehead. My daddy's forehead got its own area code. My daddy's baseball cap got stretch marks. My daddy pillowcase got craters. His eyebrows need GPS to find each other. My daddy's forehead lives in two time zones. Planets confuse my daddy's forehead for the sun. Couch cushions lose quarters in the wrinkles in my daddy's forehead. My daddy is so smart. He falls asleep with the movie on and wake up soon as the credits start to roll. My daddy's so smart. He performs surgery on his own ingrown toenail. Mama was not impressed, but my daddy got brains. My daddy know exactly how to drive me to my friend's house without looking at no map. My daddy born here. He's so smart. He know the highways like the wrinkles in his forehead. He know the free clinics like the gray hairs on his big ass head. My daddy's so smart. He wear a stethoscope and a white coat. My daddy drive to work in a minivan only slightly bigger than his forehead. That's just how my daddy rolls. My daddy got swag. My daddy danced to single ladies in the hallway. My daddy drink a small coffee, cream and sugar. My daddy drink a whole can of Red Bull. My daddy eat a whole pack of sour Skittles and never had a cavity. My daddy's so smart. He got a pull-out couch in his office. Got a mini fridge there too. Got a cell phone and a pager where I can leave him messages when he's not at home. My daddy's not home. Mama saves a plate that turns cold. But when my daddy does come home, he got an office in his bedroom too. Computer screen, nightlight. Mama says she can't sleep right, but my daddy got work. My daddy at work, at home, in the attic. With the TV on in the dark, from the front yard through the windows, you can see him working, glass flickering. My house got its own forehead, squinting, sweaty in the evening, while my daddy at work, at home, in his own area code, a whole other time zone. Thank you. That was Thank beautiful. You. Thanks. This is called "How to Teach Poetry." In Chicago public schools, look clean, fresh kicks, cut jeans, iron them shits. Cause even in uniform, the baddest students swagger on a hundred, and those the kids you hope to build with, the ones who got a crate of albums on heart, Wheezy, Gucci. Waka flaka. Some may even have their own bars for days. They spit alone in their room. To their little brother, a girl, they might be reluctant to share, especially with the teacher, especially with the white boy. Spit heat. Start with the rhyme. Something quick. A half note behind West Side. Double time. Their ears picked. Able to roll with all those syllables. Now read a poem. Something about moms. The train. Pops being gone. We all have that in common. Something slow, familiar, familial, and offering to Gwendolyn Brooks and Carl Sandburg resting on your shoulder. Ask where their favorite rapper is from. Jay from Marcy. Yay, the South Side. Everybody know Wayne Katrina's soldier boy from '97 to '03. Have a firm, well-reasoned opinion on who is better, Pac or Big. After that, Young Money, New Language, Kanye couplets on memory, photocopy Willie Perdomo's "Where I'm From" the wrong way, make it read right to left. Do this to fuck with them, to throw a monkey wrench into normal. None of us are from Spanish Harlem. 
But Englewood know about police. Every block in the hundreds have old men who talk shit. Guns that fire cracker. Grandmothers who stir big pots. The whole west side is littered with nieces telling you to look past blue blocks blue box street lights because regardless of where you from you from there know there and have never been asked to experts so speak on it talk about it sit the fuck down and write all right kevin and jamila thank you thank you thanks for having us yes thank you Nobody been-